Coaching Inside the Box. A youth soccer coaching podcast. A Brit, a Brazilian, and an American discuss culture and environment and the impact it has on youth development. Can you coach inside the box? Hello and welcome to another rousing episode of Coaching Inside the Box, episode number 60. Today, we welcome back Philippe Abreu. I've always wanted to do that. That was worse than Andy's joke. But. I, I, actually, Andy, talked, Andy and I talked before. I was going to do that instead of his jokes today. No, he already, I, I, I know he has something coming because he already told me. Beforehand, I had somebody I'm really ask glad me. Glad you didn't give in to the urge to do that earlier. Uh, uh, somebody asked me earlier uh, last week. They ran into me at the facility, came up and introduced myself, introduced themselves because they listened to all of our episodes on the pod. And he asked if there was a way that we could put a skip Andy's joke button where they just push it and then they get to the to the meat of the stuff. No, yeah. <laughs> Andy says no. I, mean, I thought about maybe like doing some campaign where people could Venmo a dollar to Philippe's Venmo account, and if we got to five dollars, Andy would agree to skip the jokes. We could just give him the five bucks. That's uh, that's actually a great idea. I bet we I bet we could raise some decent money. <laughs> Listen to me while I'm still paying the bills for the studio. I do my stupid jokes, okay? <laughs> well, that's what I'm, that's what I'm right, asking. Sir. <laughs> you 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 got to humor the insane old guy. You know it's. it's <laughs> That's an unwritten part of the At Constitution. Least somebody's happy. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Philippe, we we got to talk. I mean, you know, we're the best will in the world. When I was your age, this wouldn't have happened. You 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 have at home a, a beautiful wife, and yet you're texting me highlights of Brazilian soccer at three in the morning. What is wrong with this picture? <laughs> well, she's asleep. <laughs> <laughs> She's tired. <laughs> don't you ever sleep then? I mean, you don't get tired? Guys, I haven't even introduced Andy Barney. There's a good reason why nobody wants to know. <laughs> well, after after you coach soccer, an average of four or five hours a day, night. You, you sleep you, good. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I don't. The balls are still banging in my, in my brain. I'm still seeing goals. I'm still thinking about you know, everything. It's crazy. <laughs> and you know, you'll get home late to start watching soccer. The weird thing for me is that the it's like historically nice weather here in Kansas City right now, and we're uh, um, recording this inside. And both of you two knuckleheads are wearing winter coats still. Yeah, because inside cause while we la- record this episode, because last night was cold, so I'm still okay. cold. <laughs> And I have to wear these big jackets to hide my belly these uh, days. Okay. Yeah, you know, it's hell to get old, you know. So, um, you know, old people get cold all the time, and that's Andy's life these days. Skin's, skin's thinner, I think is how it works, right? Yeah, my, my life is, you know, actually yesterday, you know, half my life was spent watching this this highlight tape of Grace and Lens. You know, so I haven't seen it. Uh, Peter, you know, he, he told me not to distribute it. You know, okay. he's, he's not into, you know, like boosting Grayson's ego publicly, but Grayson's, you know, on the... Uh, on the uh, ODP national team, and uh-huh. uh, and uh, he's a good player. Yeah, I coach against him often. And so he says, "Hey, take a look at these highlights." You know, so I started looking at the highlights, 
five hours later, I'm still looking at the highlights. <laughs> I mean, he's recorded every highlight. Here's Grayson as a baby with a soccer ball in his crib. You know, I mean, this, this more guy, is more, this, right? He just keeps adding to it. This highlight tape went on. <laughs> you can't say, on you keep on. saying about more is more. You can't say anything about it. You've got to sit there and watch it and, be, and still be excited. I, I got 10,000 steps in and I wasn't a third of the way through the highlight tape. <laughs> <laughs> and he is slow at his age. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it that was like eight hours. Steps is what you're oh, saying. Yeah. <laughs> it was like eight hours of walking <laughs> and I was only a third through the highlight tape. <laughs> oh, dear. Should we get into my jokes? Oh, man. <laughs> you I've just been dying, dying, <laughs> waiting for this. Yep. <laughs> What New Year's resolution should a basketball player never make? I don't know. To travel more. No? I thought that was corny, but I thought at least get like a snigger from you. If you haven't figured this out yet, I stop listening when you start here, <laughs> and I just wait for you to nod to me to say, I don't know. <laughs> That's fair enough. I just I, thought it was terrible. I, 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 I would do the same in your shoes. I went to a basketball game the other day. I sat in the front row. I couldn't figure out why the basketball kept getting larger and larger. Then it hit me. <laughs> if you haven't figured it out yet, we are going to be talking basketball today, guys. Yeah. Why can't dinosaurs play basketball? Um, it wasn't invented. Because they're in extinct. I did the same thing. I was like, why? Why? You know, I was thinking of all these reasons and I missed the obvious. Why do basketball players get so much respect? I don't know. People look up to them. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that's why soccer is such a good game. It it's doesn't. interesting looking at your joke notes. Like it's you know big margins, a lot of space, super bold text, so you can read it. I assume that's for your old eyes. But no. then the rest of your notes don't have that. I, I write it in big text because the jokes are so stupid. You know, I have to honor the jokes with big text. Which dinosaur was the best ever at basketball? Hmm. LeBron Tesaurus. You just made it up for me. <laughs> LeBron? Hey, come on. LeBron James? Really? I know who LeBron James is. Yeah, but Brontosaurus oh, was a dinosaur. You didn't put the two together? Oh, okay. Brazilians. Brontosaurus. <laughs> Sorry if I'm not familiar with dinosaur names and species. Why did Cinderella suck at basketball? I like this one. Why did Cinderella suck at basketball? She was wearing heels? No, her coach was a pumpkin. <laughs> Think about it. A coach's car in English, <laughs> British English, right? Uh, yeah, you've probably never heard the Cinderella Coach's story. carriage. Yeah. Yeah. The carriage that she rode away from the ball was a was a was called a coach. With, with all my kids, I got pretty familiar yeah. with Disney, you know, so. Yeah. Two basketball teams played each other. The home team won, but not a single man from either team scored. How did this happen? Um, a woman scored? Sorry? A woman scored? Oh, you're right. It was a women's game. Mm. <laughs> well done. Okay. I didn't expect you to get that. Philippe wouldn't have got that in a million years. <laughs> Philippe doesn't even try. <laughs> <laughs> if it's not soccer, Philippe doesn't try. That's right. 
if a jockey wears jockey shorts and a basketball player wears basketball shorts, what kind of shorts do the last two presidents wear? President uh, shorts. J- uh, depends. Depends. Yeah. <laughs> well done. Because well we were talking done. about beforehand how old they are. <laughs> now we can get to the, the heart of it. The that meat was of like it. 12 jokes. I was I was a deep well because we're talking basketball today. We're talking what made the 1992 USA Olympic basketball team the dream team. What made them uh, possible? Why did they become who they were? Um, and so can, with can that, I, can with, I can I jump in? Nope. Here? So, with because that in mind, Philippe said <laughs> that was like twelve jokes. So this just sums up Philippe's intelligence because <clears throat> it was eight jokes. So he's just added fifty percent onto the total. That's massive, fifty percent. No, he said that was like twelve jokes. I think he was indicating that it that felt like a oh, forever pain, amount of the, jokes. the pain. You got to understand. You got to understand. In <laughs> a salesman. Always exaggerate. You don't make things up, but you exaggerate. You inflate things. So I'm a twelve never jokes. You to be a salesman. Though. Yeah, but you know, gotta, <laughs> who knows what the future holds? Uh, um, that's oh. a bad salesman that only wants to make one sale. So <laughs> we're we're gonna dig into uh, the uh, dream team, the 1992, where where my love of the NBA really began as a young child. Um, the Barcelona USA Olympic Dream Team. How do those players get to be so good? Um, and uh, we're going to delve in. How many How many points is it, Andy? Is it 12 or so? Uh, according to Philippe, it's 873. <laughs> 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 but it's going to be good stuff, and, and it really connects into why we, why we coach the way that we do. Um, and so, Andy, um, why don't you get us started on where the first one came from? Okay, so, you know, the, the initial impetus for, the, you know, the dream team, you know, after doing a lot of research on this is, is you know, and, and this is fairly obvious, but, you know, we have to make this point because it's really important. They were introduced to the basketball at an early age. You know, they, they, they weren't introduced to the game of basketball at an early age. They didn't know the rules. You know, they, they were just introduced to the basketball at an early age and developed a love affair with the basketball you know and and as much as i don't really want to you know um you know play into you know philippe's ego again that's the difference in brazil kids are introduced to the basketball at a much earlier age on average than the rest of the world you know it's 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 a different beast right philippe basketball so that's ball. these days because they're not ball. any good at soccer any longer. <laughs> <laughs> They've got some some NBA uh, NBA stars. Oh, they're better so at basketball than they are at soccer these days. Yeah. No, we're not. <laughs> but it's, it's being introduced to the ball at the early age obviously changes the whole trajectory of everything. My favorite way to talk about Maradona or Messi, Andy, is when you talk about them, and we we put ourselves in the shoes of of the other kids in their neighborhood growing up. And, and Maradona had the ball the whole time. And so he kept getting better while everybody around him was watching. And did he get so better? true. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 it, and it, come, it came from, uh, you know, without a doubt, a love affair with the ball. He loved the ball at a younger age than the other kids around him. And as a result, he was ahead of them when they started playing in the street. And when he was ahead of them and he started playing in the street, he got all the touches. He was the, he was the, the, the King Kong Dong of the, of the field. Yeah, I mean, every every great player you hear about a story no, of a hold garage. On, hold on uh, a second. We've, we've got to dissect what Andrew just said. You ever no, use King Kong Dong? No. <laughs> 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 it, 
He was the King Kong dog. <laughs> what? what? Uh, well, I, don't, I don't know what a I dong means, but... <laughs> I don't know I, if I want I, to. <laughs> I, know what, I know what King Kong means. I'm just trying to figure out if, if you're using dog the, the way that I would, that I would use it. <laughs> I don't use any dogs. I don't know <laughs> I apologise to our viewership. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the King Kong Dong. He was the man <laughs> on the, on the court. Again. Oh my god! You've never gosh. used the term King Kong Dong? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I see it in the mirror every night. <laughs> this episode has gone off the rails. Oh we haven't even started yet. Oh, oh my golly gosh! Uh, <laughs> Can we get back on track? <laughs> <laughs> Andy is currently crying, so no, I'm not sure that we can get back on track. Um, uh, <laughs> the best jokes are visualized. No, I was, I was, I was <laughs> jokes are visual. <laughs> right? That's burning all the 12. <laughs> oh, I felt like I went back to primary school there for a minute. <laughs> oh, dear. Most of the Dream, tree, deep dream Team <laughs> attributed their success to many hours of dog-eat-dog battles underneath the basket at the local gym or playground. This led Andy to evaluate the circumstances that gave them their extraordinary abilities. Andy's identified the following list of circumstances as the major contributing factors to those basketball Dream Team players' success. Number one. Didn't we already do this? No. <laughs> they were introduced to the game of basketball at an early age. Number two. As kids, they played many hours of 1v1, 2v2, and 3v3, and continued to do so throughout their careers. And in like this fun, creative environment that encouraged, encouraged them to try to one-up each other. Right, like, like to, to do something a little bit more special, a little bit more creative. It wasn't just beating the guy and getting into the basket. It was humiliating the guy and getting into the basket. Yeah, I mean, in soccer, that's how I grew up. It's basically when you're with a friend or a cousin or whatever, you, you, it's the, the most common thing you do. You get a ball and you go play one-on-one. You go, you know, if there's a goal, you go, go at the goal. If there's not a goal, you put... Um, uh, flip flops or whatever on the f- and make goals on the on the street or you know on the hallway, you know I, we would make it as tight as like the hallway of the apartment, you know, really tiny apartment, little hallway. It and that's where we played, you know. It's way more na- way narrower than any of the boxes and fields we have here, but that's what we had. Whatever space we had, if it was raining or you know, too hot outside or whatever. And, you know, for some reason we couldn't go outside, you know, for whatever. You, we would play inside the house. You know, right. we'd do See, and that's the difference between Brazilian soccer and English soccer. Because when we played one-on-one, you know, I had a big recreation ground behind my house. And, you know, and, and, you know I'd, I'd play with my friend. And what we would do is we'd go over to the recreation ground and we'd put the ball in a certain spot. And then we'd have competitions to see how far we could kick it. <laughs> <laughs> you yell boom as your foot hit the ball? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was all about watching <laughs> soccer on the weekend, you know. And especially when I grew up, the Brazilian league was incredible. So we had 
more than half of the national team when we won in 2002, when we went to the final 98, in 94, more than half still played in Brazil. We had the two, three sometimes best players that were in the top European teams as the highest three, four or five players in the world. But the, all the rest, they were all in Brazil. So you'd see, you'd know what these guys were doing elsewhere and, you know, see them come back to the national team and do like mind-blowing stuff. But you would also, on a daily basis, in your team, and every city has three, four, two big, big clubs, your team, the team that you support like crazy, has two... In the 90s, all of them had two, three, four, five guys that were like national team caliber, incredible on the ball. We would watch these guys do the things on the weekends, and we would go try to do it ourselves, you know? That's the one thing that, for me, was very different in the culture of soccer and coaching here in Brazil nobody teaches technique of anything because every kid knows how to kick a ball it's like it's almost like you're born knowing but you just do it so early you know with your dad and your dad played the game so your dad knows how to strike a ball and you know how to receive a ball and all that so by the time you actually get to a social age you already have the basics so like nobody talk I've never heard expressions like lock your ankle point your toe down like we don't hear that doesn't exist nobody even knows they just it pretty much organic you just do it you know everybody even my player my friends that uh, age eight never played soccer again were crap they still know how to kick a ball you know it's just it's the, the the game is is pervasive within the culture yeah yeah um it's like i can't throw a basketball any american kid can throw a basketball or throw a football mm. I've seen a few that can. Growing <laughs> up in England, the, the kid that won was the kid that could get rid of it the quickest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I mean, we, we talk about, like, we talk often about these small-sided games as being at such a, a centerpiece of developing that, that, that opportunity for creative thought, creative play to come. But, Andy, as I, as I read this chapter that you put together specifically um, attributing – where the dream team got it. Um, you talk about two things specifically, small target, a small practice area, right? Small hoop and the key. Um, and those small spaces being at the core and at the forefront on where Magic Johnson became Magic Johnson, where uh, Michael Jordan became Michael Jordan. Um, what do you mean by that? Well, I've, I've got this absolutely fantastic photograph uh, in New York City of a playground. And in the background, there's a building on fire. And the kids are playing 3v3 basketball while the firefighters are, are, are dousing the flames. You know, they're, they're just not interested in the building fire, you know, because basketball underneath the basket in the key is more enjoyable. It's more, you know, so, you know, after watching the building fire for 30 seconds, why would you want to watch it anymore? You know, nothing's going to happen spectacular. You know, you can do better things under the basket. It's a whole different mentality, you know. And, you know, what we've done, you know, in soccer is we've gone the other way. We've got these incredible complexes, you know, that, uh, you know, have 120 by 75 yard fields, you know, and everybody gets, you know, 20 square yards of space and they never get to be even decent at the game of soccer because given so much space and time, they're not put under pressure to be like the dream team were, you know, and be able to do unbelievable things in the key in order to whoop up on the rest of the world by ridiculous scores. I'm actually glad you brought this up because 
there's been numerous times I've been out at the fields, not not our uh, facility, but out at the fields, out at, at Overland Park Soccer Complex, for example, um, in between games, just kind of watching kids on a spare field. My kids, oftentimes, are the kids out on the spare field kicking their kicking the ball around, and almost inevitably, I see one of a few different activities. I see kids um, with a, a bunch of space just pinging balls back and forth, a la the English in the '60s. <laughs> I see kids. Um, By it the seems way, it like, wasn't that way in reality. We used to play a lot of one on one. But it then. seems like it seems like oftentimes on the field, I'll see kids taking corner kicks, like uh, uh, playing corner kicks into the middle for a kid to finish. Um, I'll see kids taking penalty kicks often, or just shooting the ball while one kid's at goal. Last night, I walked into our facility, um, and you guys know it, right? When we're there's the, every field is used for practice. When there's this weird um, intermission between one practice and the next, there's always kids just at the facility hopping onto the field. And so I walked up to my field a couple minutes after we were supposed to have it. We lingered in the boxes a little bit longer than normal, and there were three kids on the field, and those three kids weren't taking penalty shots they weren't just knocking the ball back and forth one girl and one boy were playing really intense 1v1 while the other kid played in goal and the game I think it was the game you used to play all the time whoever scored ended up going in goal or something like that as a kid but the kids in our facility weren't doing the um, less advantageous fun creative um, uh, kick around they were playing 1v1 in a really tight space and I think it has to do with the culture that exists within this facility but I think it absolutely has to do with the environment that we've created where the walls are everywhere and we play 1v1 so often it was fun to kind of see that comparison between Overland Park soccer complex and the Legends indoor training facility yeah I, growing up I you know I had this good friend called you know Stephen Bell you know last name Bell you know his nickname was Dinger Dinger Bell you know, and and uh, he and I, you know, used to play all the time together. And, and nine times out of ten, there was a third person that would join in with us. You know, but we were there every single day. And I owe my soccer career to Dinger being willing to come round and play. Without him, I would say ninety percent of my one-on-ones would have disappeared. You know, so you know, I was able, the only one in my neighbourhood, you know, to to step out of this era you know, and play at the level that I played at, you know, and it was purely because Dinger faithfully came around because I had the ball, you know, and the recreation ground backed up to my backyard, you know, and he came around and he called for me at a time when he knew I'd be home from school. And then we'd go out there and we'd play on the recreation ground for hours and people would join us and come and go, but we'd still be there, you know, hours later, you know, just because, you know, he came and called for me because he loved to play. And, you know, nine times out of 10, it was in small spaces, one-on-one, you know, we'd throw down a couple of jerseys on the field and we'd play, you know, one would go in a goal, one would shoot, you know, you know, and if there were three of us, one would go in goal, two would go one-on-one and shoot, you know, and that's what made me, I know at this point in time in my life, you know, a player that was able to play at a higher level. Was Dinger Bell the King Kong Dong of the Oxford <laughs> Recreation Ground? He, he was slow as a snail. Okay, so no. But he was because... As a compensation for his lack of speed, what did he have? Skill. I mean, if Incredible skill. If you probably have one Dinger in your Bell, neighborhood, right? You don't expect Lopes, him to be that yeah, good. Yeah. Yes. There's always, always, there's, we there's, all, we all, in Brazil, we, there's always that slow, slow left-footed number 10, like <laughs> super classic, super traditional, lazy, slow, but like just genius on the ball. Magic. Just genius. Right? Yeah. Sometimes can get anywhere because there is no fire, you know, and then, you know, get to the highest level, gets it in life. But it's always that one day, look, man, what a talent, what a waste. 
And like people say, lazy but talented. Let's so, just say there. I'm still friends with his brother, Aubrey, on Facebook. And Dinger, Dinger? never, Dinger never, no, Aubrey, Aubrey is brother, Dinger's brother. Okay. On Facebook. And, uh, you know, Dinger never had a Facebook, you know. And, and uh, you know, I get this message, hey, uh, my brother died, you know. And, you know, and I got to, you know, like in my mind, relive all those one on one battles and, you know, and, and really analyze, you know, what we had together. And, you know, and he was probably in terms of the amount of time I spent with him, my best friend growing up, you know, just sheer amount of time because of our love for the game together. And we played for the same club team on a weekend, you know, and, you know, and uh, apparently, you know, Aubrey said they hadn't heard from him for a while and they got a ladder and they climbed up to his second floor apartment. You know, and he must have had a big heart attack in a chair, and he was just sit sitting in the corner in front of the TV, you know, and he was exactly where he died, you know, just had probably a massive event, you know, and just sat in the chair, you know, and and uh, but you know it got me reminiscing about all those one-on-one -on -one battles that we had, and he was way more skillful than me, I was way faster than him. So, you know, and so I hope so. You did say you're slow as a snail. <laughs> yeah. So, so you know, I got to beat up on him because of my speed. But boy, he was unbelievably creative. You know, and you know the challenge is to take the fast ones and also make them creative. Yeah, because then it's game over. But that's what usually bad coaching causes. Because usually right. the fast kid builds so many bad habits because you can coach in a certain way to win the game to explore the kid's speed. Which, as the kids get older and get smarter, they can cover ground and, you know, minimize the damage of somebody being super fast if they're not good at soccer. So, well, it's the biggest shame here uh, that I see. <coughs> it's like the abuse to the fast and athletic kids and not allowing them, not forcing them out of their comfort zone, not forcing them to try to actually be great. Cause and, and, there's and why does a coach do that? It's, it's our culture to win, yeah, yeah. But, but not just to win. To please the parents. You know, and if you don't please the parents, they go elsewhere and you don't get your coaching check sure, sure. at the end of the month. You know, because the parents get butthurt because their, their team is not winning and they can't, you know, around the water fountain on Monday morning boast about their team winning the latest game, the latest championship or whatever. You know, and, and there's massive amount of ego tied up in winning. Well, and I'll, I'll tell you this. I have friends. Let me that finish coach, the point, though. Yeah. There's a massive amount of t ego tied up in winning. And as a result of the ego that parents and coaches have tied up in winning, they literally cut their own kids' developmental throats. Yeah. Does that make sense? Carry on. No, uh, I was going to say I've heard from friends that coach, uh, coaching elsewhere of like going to this travel, you know, travel weekend for the club. And, you know, they're watching me, you know, like the directors, they, they, they expect me to do well they expect me to win because you know the age group is the, is the, isn't doing so well blah 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 so like they expect so the coach goes into the game with that kind of pressure with 14 year old kids that pay to play soccer it's just it doesn't make any sense yeah parents are actually playing to have their kids independent spirit destroyed in our current youth soccer environment yeah, it's not like... It's crazy. Yeah, it, it's not so like... It, it, let me kid, take your money and kill your kid's motivation to be a brilliant individual. How does that sound, Mom? And, that, and that's why you didn't go Dad? into marketing, Andy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I was talking to Kyle Hoke. So Kyle, for those of you listening that don't know Kyle, Kyle is the executive director of Legends. So he runs uh, our club. He's the leader for our club here locally, but then also um, nationally as well. 
Um, and Kyle and I grew up playing together. Kyle was the slower than snail player on our team growing up. Um, but there's a oh, that's that's um, an insult to snails. <laughs> <laughs> there's a uh, there's a uh, another coach that's in our club that was on the arch nemesis rival team of Kyle and I's growing up. Um, and uh, this coach's name is Paul Link. And and Kyle and I were talking about the 2013 and 2014 girls age group last night here at the facility. Um, and Paul's daughter inevitably inevitably came up because she's very very good. Um, and Kyle said uh, that um, that Paul. Um, told him that one of the reasons he wanted to get Andy, his daughter, involved in Legends and coaching Legends was because growing up, he felt as though he was so much better than some of the other guys in our team, specifically two future college teammates, Wes Freevert and Jared Atwood. He goes, as a kid, I could outrun those guys. I was so much more effective. As a, all the way into high school, I was convinced I was better than both of them by a significant margin. And then we got to college, and those guys played over me over and over and over again, and I sat the bench. And the difference between those guys and I— So Link went to Truman State. Link went to Truman State as well. The difference okay. between those guys and I is those guys were so good on the ball. And while I was more athletic and faster than them— I wasn't seeing playing time that those guys were seeing. Um, and that's where that... I'd never heard this story. I'd never heard it until last night either, and I thought it was a really good story to I, to, I didn't to specifically even know point that Paul out went that the to Truman State. Yeah, the, but specifically point out that like Paul was surely by his coach, you know, they were kind of a, a direct kick-and-run style of play, and Paul was their forward. Paul was their fast, you know, athletic monster um, of a player that we had to account for every time we played them on, on especially on the break. It was, uh, Paul was always the one that was most likely to, to get something, um, in our, in our early high he school. He was a fantastic athlete. Fantastic, fantastic athlete. And yeah. he scored the, the goal that won state cup for the team that we played against. Yeah, he hit it from like 40 yards. Yeah. It was yeah. In top corner. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, he was, he was the best player. He was the center striker on, on the team that we played against that won state cup. But I can tell you, Paul learned that lesson because if you watch his daughter play, who's a 2013 now, Andy. Oh, I coached her individually for a while. Oh, my goodness. There is not a bit of using and abusing her athleticism. She is so skillful. And you add that skill um, and that aggression, aggression and that tenacity that she's got, some in part because of the environment that, that, that she's been training in, but all, some in part because it's natural um, and it came from her dad and her mom. Um, uh, you know, she's she's got a high ceiling in this game. She's well, a lot further you, than Paul we, ever did. We 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 spoke about that specifically because you know, Andy Link is a, a protege. You know, she's an athletic phenom. She's like Paul. Yep. She's really fast. You know, she's very intelligent. You know, and you know, you know, talking to Paul, I said you got to pretend she's slow. You know, you got to have her convinced in her mind that she doesn't have the speed because, you know, if she starts to use her speed over her skill, she's going to be a fraction of the player that she potentially or, will be. Or have her play up. Have her play up. Have her play up. She probably does play up. I don't, exactly. I, I'm not close to the, that age group, so I don't know. But, but she, she's got unbelievable potential. And Paul gets it because he was denied it. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people that you haven't experienced being on the other side of that fence, you know, and, and Wesley Freever, you know, and, and Jared Atwood, you know, the two players that played above him at Truman State, slow as snails. Yeah, they're not quick. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're just, you know, Jared was a little bit faster than Wesley. You know, Wesley's dad, you know, was was a, a NCAA Division One basketball player in Texas, you know, and, you know, six foot ten. You know, massive guy. West did not turn out to be six foot ten, more like six. But he got Larry's slow jeans. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so you know, he he was never fast, but he was very very skillful for a big guy. 
you know, and it doesn't surprise me that he played above Paul because ultimately when you get to that level, you know, your effectiveness is mostly to do with your skill, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's what, you know, Wesley had over, over Paul. At, at, at in college, we had two players that uh, were on the team that, uh, <laughs> that uh, 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 were Texas, like, state qualifying 100 and 200 meters sprinters, like, just obnoxiously fast and uh freshman year no sophomore year we're playing at tulsa um and uh we get out there and we're playing and we're playing them okay but we're they're they're better than we are and they're i think they're up 3-0 or something and finally the coach gets this itch to sub in jonathan banister onto the field this is the first minutes jonathan had seen in his first two years at at drury Um, and jonathan banister was one of these like you know state qualifying sprinters Within the first four minutes of Jonathan being on the field, he has three breakaways for the with the keeper. Not one shot hits the target, and one of the shots actually went out for a throw-in, and then we subbed him back off. Homeboy could run, <laughs> but he couldn't do it. So wait a minute, else. you know I've got this clip. Still, I've got this clip after all these years of you, you know, in in like the state championship final. Blasting the ball ten yards over the bar. It was probably three yards. You over know, the and bar. that was one of your things. You were fast. You were quick, and you were fast. But you know, you I leaned beat on four that. guys. I beat four guys along the way with a Cruyff turn um, and a little bitty Matthews move. Yeah, that was one guy. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's every time we talk about this, it goes to another guy. You know, it, it'll be twelve guys, even though there's well, only I'll get eleven the clip on, on the my field. phone. Maybe I'll share it. Share it. Let everybody see it. it can be the judge. <laughs> It was a great dribble. It was a great <laughs> dribble. Well, Jonathan did not dribble to create that space. He just waited till coach yelled, go! And then he ran. <laughs> and he had to wait for the coach to say go because he wouldn't time the run perfectly. There was, a, uh, there was another kid on the team, Justin Perry. Uh, we had an English fellow on the team who had a special way with words since we're using colorful language today. Every time Justin got the ball, the English fellow on the team would go, there goes Justin Perry with the touch of a rapist. Oh, dear. Because <laughs> his touch was it's so not bad. Correct, no, is it? Not at all. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's so let's get back to you know the the one v ones, two v twos, and three v threes. That the basketball team, you know, in the hood, you know, where they grew up, you know, used to play day in and day out. You know, because you know that team was unstoppable in basketball. You know, I mean, they were they were massive, but they were also incredibly skillful. You know, and they just steamrolled worldwide competition in the sport to a ridiculous degree. You know, it was like Brazil in soccer on speed. You know what they did to the rest of the world in basketball. It was a foregone conclusion before they even started the tournament yeah. that they would win it and win it by ridiculous margins. You know, and so you know what we've got is they were introduced to basketball at an early age. You know, so they grew up with a ball. They were introduced to a basketball, not the game of basketball, a basketball. We need to introduce kids to a soccer ball at an early age so they grow up with it and it becomes an extension of their leg. You know, and as kids, they played many hours of 1v1, 2v2 and 3v3 under the basket. Make sense? Mm-hmm. What's next? You got to talk about the the space in which they played, right? The small key, the the, the playing environment that was really small. But then I think you also have to dig into, um, and Andy, you mentioned this specifically that the the because they're playing one v one, two v two, and three v three, the high level of offensive responsibility they have to the game and defensive responsibility. There's nowhere to hide, right? They're not just a cog within the wheel. When you're playing one v one, you are the wheel. Right, you've got to find the back. Even when you're playing two v two, you can't just hang around, right? Unless you've got Michael Jordan on, the, on, on as your as your teammate. 
Yeah, there's an amazing level of individual responsibility in small-sided games. You know, and you know, you play one versus one, you go to two versus two. The individual responsibility halves going from one versus one to two versus two. Then you go to three versus three, and now it's a third. You know, and yet most coaches do bigger than that numbers in practice. You know, and they're guaranteeing that the players that play for them take less and less individual responsibility, you know, to win the game, to make big plays, to make incredible things happen. You know, so the worst thing you can do is actually increase the number of players relative to the ball. The ratio is absolutely the vital thing that you've got to focus on. So what do we focus on when the kids first come to us? We teach incredible technique. How many kids, how many balls? 11 kids come to practice, how many balls? 11. You know, it, it's that simple. Mm -hmm. And we teach them the most incredible foot skills. You know, the world's best fakes and moves from day one because those world's best fakes and moves include just about every neuromuscular ability you can imagine that you're going to need in the game of soccer. You know, so by working on specific world's best moves, we actually get massive transfer of training into everything else a kid needs in order to be a physiological genius, a technical genius. You know, so that's how we start. And then we go to one-on-ones. You know, because now we need to gradually put it under pressure. But we don't go straight to the battle of one-on-ones. You know, we, you know, low-pressure one-on-ones. You know, we, we get it so the kids can have a lot of success with the moves. And gradually, as they get better and better and they can handle more pressure, we increase the pressure until eventually we've gone through three or four or five different stages. And now they're going one versus one, head-to-head. -head, you know, but they've got the technique because we spend a lot of time on technique. You know, and we also spend a lot of time with low-pressure defense so they built their confidence and built their ability. And eventually, we release them to the absolutely ding-dong did I use that word again? Ding dong <laughs> battles, you know, in the one on one, you know, so that they can absolutely beat up on each other and develop the type of skill they're going to need in the middle of the penalty area, you know, when the game is on the line. Well, coaches that are coaching those younger age groups and teaching the skills, they oftentimes ask, like, when you talk about low pressure, what do you mean? And I always, you know, I've always had a lot of success initially using time, right? Using time as a, as a, as a pressure for the kids to have to quickly perform a skill when I call it out. Um, but then, you know, Andy, I remember when we were kids and we were learning the skills, you had the defenders hopping on one foot. Right. You had the crab defenders yeah, yeah, in a crab position crawling around the field. And it gave us as players that 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 fun excitement where, oh, I've got some pressure coming, but it's not so fast that I can still have success, uh, you know, ripping out that 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 scissors or that Cruyff turn or whatever move it is that we're working on at that time. As kids get better and better at dribbling, you increase the pressure. But you start them with something that can give them success because success is motivational. Mm -hmm. So if I can beat the crabs because they're on, you know, they're not allowed to put their butt on the floor. You know, they've got to keep their weight on their hands and their feet while they're crabbing around trying to tackle people. If I can beat the crabs, you know, on a consistent basis, then it's time to move on sure. from crab tackle. You know, if my players are that good that the crabs can't win the ball anymore, now we have them hopping on one leg and it becomes harder to beat them because, you know, uh, you know that's a little bit more difficult 
than beating somebody that's on the floor in all fours. I have this memory of Michael Brosman from our team who is left-footed and just so precise with the ball um, and his ability to maneuver that ball at a young age. I just have this vision is when we would play uh, sharks and minnows as kids and you would turn us into crabs in the middle of the field. Michael was always the last one that it didn't matter how many crabs were on the field, he could figure his way out through all of them. Yeah, Michael was an absolute genius with the ball. Yeah. You know, he was a state champion tennis player as well as being one of the genius best soccer with, players. Without the ball, too, in the classroom. In yeah, yeah, you know, it's just, you know, well, his, his dad was a genius as well. You know, and, uh, you know, dad owns street side records. You know, dad started La Petite Preschool chain, you know, owns banks to this day. You know, and, and so, you know, a lot, a lot of that is expectation. A lot of that that was in the genes. You know, and Michael had this unbelievable left foot that he could peel a grape with, you know, and, you know, he used to dominate those those little games. He was so far ahead of the rest of the team, you know, and, you know, it, it almost wasn't fair, you know. Mm. But um, in the end, you know, what goes around comes around in some ways. You know, he unfortunately got bad plantar fasciitis. And so even though he was being chased by Brian Tompkins at Yale, Brian wanted him, you know, so badly he could taste it. You know, and you know, and and Michael just couldn't do it. He wanted to go and play for Brian, and but you know, his feet wouldn't let him, you know, play, you know, anymore. You know, sad really because he had so much talent. Mm-hmm. You know, but he's now in the video game industry, and apparently he's killing it. You know, as a very high level executive, as a professional player. You know, as because <laughs> <laughs> I hear those guys make a lot of money. Yeah, he's on too. FIFA. He's on FIFA. <laughs> FIFA's his game. I thought maybe he was a Fortnite guy. Uh, he's way too important, apparently, to you know to be at the low level of the of video game the industry. Games. Yeah, playing <laughs> the games. You know, but you know, and uh, but you know, this comes back to that brave creative. You know, you know, a lot of what Michael learned was you know, you know, take what you're given and make the most of it. So even when injury forced him out of the game, you know, he switched into something something else he had a passion for, video games, and he made his life doing something that he really enjoyed. You know, you got to respect that, right? Yeah, but something you've always been passionate about from a, a game coaching perspective, Andy, is that uh, is the, the 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 positive possibilities from a developmental perspective. When you talk about um, uh, the proximity to the basket or the proximity to the goal and the activities that we do, right? Like you specifically mentioned it here in this chapter, an intense focus on shooting skills due to a constant proximity proximity to the basket. Constant being, I think, the key word there. You know, if you go and watch kids play basketball in a one v one, two v two setting, it's they're always within within range to shoot. It's the same when we're playing one v ones or two v twos in the back of our facility. There's never a moment where the defender can turn off even for a second because the player can can shoot from where they are on the field. And I think that changes not just our ability to put the ball in the back of the net, but it changes every piece of the game because the level of pressure in those moments is as high as it could be. So you walk into your kitchen and you have a cooker, you know, you have an oven, right? And on the top of the oven, there's four rings that in at least, you know, you know, in, we've got electric oven and, and, you know, and there's four rings above the actual oven part of, of you know, the piece of equipment. And, and uh, you turn one ring on, you know, and, you know, in that one ring, if you put your hand on it five minutes later, you're going to hospital because you turn the one ring on. You can put your hand on any of the three rings that are in close proximity to the one ring, you know, and they don't even feel warm, you know. And this is the difference about playing in tight spaces, in tiny spaces, is, you know, you're literally, not, you're not just in the kitchen, you know, with the heat turned up, 
you're not even, you know, you know, in the general area of the oven, you know, with, you know, with the oven on, you know, you're not even in one of the other rings when, you know, the ring is, you know, turned on, you know, you're literally dancing on that one ring, that hot plate of the oven, you know, when you're playing in tight spaces, you know, and you're expected to play incredibly skillfully, you know, and, and yet we don't do this in our culture. You know, this is what's made Brazil unbelievable over the years. And I'm sure, you know, Philippe, you can speak to that. You know, how many big spaces do you have in the favelas of Rio? Oh, none. And you don't even need to go to the favelas. I, I showed a picture to Andrew of where I live in Rio. And it's just building, 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 building. Like, it's just a concrete jungle of, of buildings. And every building has a small foot soak court with meshes around because you can put a wall because people need to view the kids that are playing right but it's meshed in right so the ball doesn't get away so you get not the rebound but you the ball doesn't get away the ball is never out of bounds and it's small it's not bigger than our fields here it's might be it's probably you know most courts are about the size of the green fields are bigger fields but even narrower and that's where you play. Same thing. You can shoot from anywhere. You and it's just a piece of concrete with two posts fenced in. That pe it's cheap. They just put it in every 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 building. Every school has one. You go to the favelas. It's the same thing everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. So kids always jump in. Two, three kids, four, five, eight, whatever, and they're just playing, 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 playing. Tight space, tight space all the time. Shooting, shooting, shooting pressure like we said it increases because you're not just defending a pass or sideways pass you're defending a shot every time uh, and you know with the focus of, of being creative in Brazil because of the culture it just that's why Brazil keeps producing players you know still to this day every year team that has more country that has more players play in the Champions League in the biggest leagues in Europe I mean we might not produce the best players anymore, but we still produce more players than anybody else. And that's because of what we have down there. You know, it's not explored the best way, probably not, but still, you know, compared to what we have here in the US, where kids only go train in big fields with their team and then they don't see the ball, they don't touch the ball, and then they go on the weekends playing in a super organized environment, you know. And then kids are always playing against kids that are born the same exact year. You know, they never played against older kids. And, young. you know, it doesn't have that element that we have in our facilities. The, the kids jumping, your son jumped in, in my practices with my older boys many times. You know, some of your uh, son's teammates. And, you know, I have girls that come to my practice, well, my boys' practices all the time. You know, and it, it's a final way to play, you know. Obviously, the... My boys are not going to kick your son, who's four years younger. They're smarter than that. Yeah, and if they did, though. I hope. <laughs> uh, but, you know, your cow is going to have to figure out how to play against bigger kids and how to be successful. He's not going to get the ball and dribble past three, four guys. But if he can do a little fake, create a space and take a shot, you know, he can strike the ball. You know, that's going to increase the speed of thought. But let's take down the even further into this because you know i think you know the these you know fenced or netted futsal fields are actually one of the reasons why brazil has gone backwards in in world soccer because before there were fenced futsal fields what were there you know there was just a tiny little area in a street with walls 
you know and so it was even more pressure it was tighter it was faster there were more bodies on it you know and this is just you know a, a fact you know you you do the square footage thing you multiply width by length and you realize that what we had before when you know Palais was growing up you know you know when Zico was growing up you know was these tiny areas there weren't these these futsal courts and so gradually no, the tiny areas are still there I'm saying the, what's there now has always existed yeah. And now nothing has changed. Nothing in Brazil has yeah, changed. Yeah, but it has changed Everything because kids same. go and no, play what, football. What, what, what has changed is the academy system, is the professional system. That's the part of the change. has not changed. Everything is exactly That's wrong, Philip. You've said to me, and I go and I, I go online, I'm not stupid. There's a lot of futsal fields now that have actually been constructed there were all over Brazil. There are fields, Andy. There are more people in Brazil. There are more streets in Brazil. There are more everything, everything in the world. Things get built. But the space peep kids are still playing in the tiny space in the favela. My point is that just like over here, and you know, we're doing it to a ridiculous degree and a stupid degree. We're building all of these big soccer complex. You know, as we get richer as societies, you know, we put in these bigger, better versions. You know, in theory, you know, of what we used to have. And so what's happened is, and it's the same in England. You know, where they used to play in the streets, they play a lot of five on side. So you've got these big five aside complexes. You know, it's the same thing. A lot of money has been put into these five-a-side complexes people run them to make money they're commercial businesses and so what happens is the kids get you know 20 square foot more than they got when my dad was growing up in the east end of london and they were playing in the streets you know with between some garages you know because the 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 parents that own these houses didn't let them play in front of the houses because of breakage window breakage you know so they had to find that little area where it was walled off it wasn't going to damage anything and they played for hours and hours in tiny micro spaces and you know the point is we've identified that here in Kansas City we don't just do you know the the futsal type field stuff and our fields are smaller than futsal fields you know, we've got fields all the way down to 36 by 18 feet, you know, that are for, you know, two, three, four, five, six, seven-year-olds. You know, so, but we've got box soccer courts. And this is microspaces. So that, you know, in Brazil these days and in England these days, you know, we've got kids growing up and they're dancing, not on the hot plate, they're dancing in the kitchen. But they're not dancing on the hot plate anymore. They don't have the tiny spaces, and they're not playing with tennis balls anymore. They're yeah, playing with real you, soccer you balls. Can, you can expect that, but we have to be realistic. We can expect kids are going to go back to play on the streets because there are cars that can get I, stabbed. So I that's agree. not going to happen. I'm, so I'm we not need to saying. find a solution. We found a perfect solution. But the here. solution that we found is not the perfect solution. In England, it's not the perfect solution. In Rio, it's not the perfect solution. Yeah, there's no there perfect should solution. be box soccer court complexes. You know, instead of building another freaking futsal field, you know, put in 10 box soccer courts. You know, and all of a sudden you've got MMA fighters, you know, that are soccer players going head to head, one on one in 20 by 12, like we have in our facility. Across but the metro area here in Kansas City, we've got 100 football, uh, box soccer courts, you know, but our coaches still want to use the big fields. We're so conditioned to putting kids on big fields with less, you know, uh, skill being developed than we are to using the box soccer courts. I would schedule my practices, one on a bigger field, to play one-on-ones transition, and one to be in the box soccer courts, because I didn't want to miss out on those box soccer courts every week. 
our coaches will jump at the chance to use a bigger field and they will not use the box soccer courts, even though the box soccer courts are probably more developmental and better for building incredible skill in tight spaces. And this is the problem we have. And we're even victims of it in our club. And we do this better than any other club I believe in the world. And we still don't play in the box soccer courts enough. I can go into our facility and every field is being used. Every bigger area is being used. And you know, out of the, I think it's 58 box soccer courts we've got in this facility, there'll only be a third being used, half being used. And it's absolutely nuts because the box soccer courts are by far the better developmental vehicles than the bigger fields are. Because you get less space, less time, and it's absolutely fierce when you get in there and you hammer each other in a box soccer court. You have to be so much more skillful, so much tougher. You know, you, you just have to have everything you need to win the battle in the microspaces in the penalty area to score that winning goal. And it only takes one, and you walk away with the championship. Right? Yeah. I think that one challenge, and I'm sitting here thinking... Um, what what could what are changes that we could make that would change the the the, the enthusiasm toward using the box soccer courts to a greater degree? And again, our our coaches and our players use the box soccer courts obviously way more than anybody else does, and nobody else has them, right? So there's really small micro spaces. Um, but um, I, I I I think some of it has to do with. With, with kids' motivation in terms of how much time they want to spend in that tight of space drilling technique versus playing the Correct. game. Correct. I think and that's play, the not part. the game, playing we a have game. To under, and that's the part that we have to understand. We're not, we're not a professional academy. We're not a professional club. We're not training kids that their only thing that they have in goal in life is to be a soccer player and – they're willing to sacrifice the fun for development and they want they don't sometimes they don't want to be on the box just with one other friend they want to be playing on the field with more friends that's when it's more fun to them and we need to find a balance and i think if we can find a good balance here you know let the kids play, you know, have them do their little scrimmage, whatever they're doing, working on the moves, and then, all right, but we also got to do, if we can find a balance, but if we go, all right, no, but that's all development, 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 the kids burn out. So we got to, and that, that always has been my strategy oh, on, with, with my with my teams, is you got to allow them to language. have fun. I think you guys actually agree you're, on you're, this. I, I, it's not I, development. I, I feel like it's, it's insulting my intelligence, to be honest. I, I really do. Because, you know, it's like I didn't coach these kids and I didn't use the boxes, you know, when you say that. You know, and, you know, the kids had fun. They went to war. They had fun. They were playing one-on-ones in the boxes. They're, they're playing war ball. They're yeah, hitting hundreds and hundreds of too. shots. They do that you know, too. They and so they don't, don't burn out. This, the opposite is true. And I completely disagree with that last statement. If you go in the boxes and you go to war, practice in and practice out, you know, you know, you don't even think about the time you've just spent. You spent 90 minutes, you fought and you battled and scrapped, you're exhausted, you walk away, you know, and you're tougher, you're more skillful, and then you come to the games on weekends and you can dominate opponents like nobody else can because you went in the boxes but and they- you went hand-to-hand combat. And this, I was, you know, you're going to find this interesting. You've never heard this before. And 
Uh, you've heard the fact that my great-great, however many great-grandfathers, Daniel Mendoza, you know, was a Portuguese Jew, you know, and, you know, he was regarded as the best boxer in Britain, 1794 to 1796. And I was reading his book last night, because this is, the, you know, the odd stuff I do. He wrote a book, you know, and I was reading his book last night. And did you know that the rings in those days that they boxed in, the roped-off areas, you know, were like 40 foot by 40 foot, massive compared to the current rings, you know, that people MMA in or box in these days, you know. And Daniel Mendoza, he was a middleweight that was, you know, heavyweight champion of the British Isles and by default heavyweight champion of the, wor of the world because they didn't box like this elsewhere in the world at that time, you know. And, you know, he... Um, won by being technical, and, and that means mostly by running away, by having a lot of space to run away into and wearing the opponent down, going in, throwing a few punches, you know, running away and wearing the opponent down, going in, throwing, throwing a few more. You know, and he had this ability to play defense incredibly, but also at times, you know, to play incredible offense. But he was going up against bigger guys, so he couldn't afford to go with the Mike Tyson route and slug it out. You know, so he had to be a technical boxer that got in and got out, made the other guys chase and wore it down. And the fights lasted. It's amazing. They lasted, f uh, you know, f uh, an hour of solid boxing. You know, it, you know, it was like an hour, an hour and a half. You know, you know, just unbelievable length of fights, you know, before the fight was won on most occasions. You know, so completely different from modern day boxing and martial arts. You know, but the point is small spaces. You know, you know, and, you know, in those days they didn't have small spaces and he could get away with running away, you know, but you don't get enough touches in small spaces. He didn't throw enough punches. He couldn't have done while he was running away. And that's the same as you give each kid more square footage, you get less skill, you get less intensity, you get less ability to hit the killer blow. You know, and to use footwork. So you're saying that we should destroy all our fields and just replace them with only boxes. No, that would be ridiculous. Exactly. I never said that. So that's the whole point that I'm trying to make. You is know, we gotta find a balance. But you think your balance is this? I somebody else might think the balance is a little less. You know, give the kids a little more. It, what they what play I'm saying though, Philippe, it. is that you know, if anything in our facility should be 50% used, fields versus boxes, it should be the fields. Right now, you're saying we have a problem if we use the boxes more. No, we have a problem because we don't completely use the boxes. We should fill up the boxes before we ever go on the fields, and we'll still get plenty of time on the fields. You know, because if this isn't right, then honestly, we should close our facilities down, and we should just go and play on the big fields at the Overland Park Soccer Complex. Because on. we then yeah. have the bigger fields, and we'll have more space. No, because you know, the Overland Park Soccer Complex is completely different than our fields here. But micro soccer is the way to go. Why? Because most goals are scored in this massively crowded zone right in front of goal. The biggest plays in world history, statistics have shown, are made in micro soccer. In the distance between the end of the box and the front of the box in a box soccer court. That's where the stats show most goals are scored. So why aren't we playing there? For crying out loud, we don't have to be geniuses to figure out that we should be training kids there if we want to be brilliant soccer players right yeah but we are training kids no there. yeah but yes that's all you have to say yes yes and <laughs> yes and we yes, are yes andy yes and we are <laughs> <laughs> but we're not half of our boxes are empty and and i have this 
conversation with the people in the club, with, with Kyle, my executive director. I love dearly, like you guys, you know, and he keeps saying to me, we need more bigger fields. And I say, no, we don't. I walk into our facility at 6.30 at night, half the boxes are empty. Until those half of the boxes are filled, we're not adding anything. You know, because we're not using our facilities capacity and we're actually not using the soccer boxes, which are the more valuable part of what we have and what we do. We're not using them first. I'm not going to spend more money on extra square footage to put in bigger fields that ruin our kids' chances of being that fox in the box, of being that, you know, that, that Harland, you know, of being that Jimmy Greaves from the 1960s, of being, you know, Marco Van Basten, of being that fox in the box, that sniffer, that Alan Clark of Leeds United during their what heydays. What if the kid doesn't want to be Alan Clark? Just what if the kid doesn't want to be Alan Clark? They want to come in and play soccer with their friends. We got you got that's the part that you're you're missing. No, I'm not We're, missing we that. We have 150. Teams. I used to play soccer with my friends. Yeah, but you wanted to be a professional soccer player. Uh, out of our 150, you make it sound like box soccer is not fun. My kids love it. Yes, it, you know it's I, hand to hand combat. Not What's you, not you to love? You refuse to understand. Nobody, no, I, I don't refuse to understand. I love my wife. I don't want to be 24 7, 24 hours sitting just me and her. And I love her more than anything in the world. I love sushi. I don't want to eat sushi for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That's where you and I differ. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes well, I want to eat a steak. Sushi That's it. See, what you don't get is that your your marriage is not real love because I want to be with my wife 24-7. Why are you not there now? She's my box soccer court. Why are you not there now? <laughs> Uh, I cannot wait to tell Tracy <laughs> next time I see her. Andy said you are his box soccer coach. <laughs> context. That, that's context, the please. Compliment. Uh, I the mean, day that he compares me to a box soccer, I'm going to feel like I won his heart. <laughs> you say you don't even want to spend time with your life. Uh, um, I mean, I look at it. I look at it from this perspective, and I think Andy might disagree with me. Maybe not, but... The box soccer courts are the best in the world at developing technique. Yep, and technique, 100%. Technique, um, uh, uh, repetition, the number of repetitions because the speed in which box soccer, the box soccer courts require things to happen. Um, but the box soccer courts are not the best place to develop decision-making. Decision-making in terms of the number of tactical nuances and the number of variables that you have to adjust to to play. And on our field, during a crowded 1v1, when there are six or seven simultaneous 1v1 games going on at one time, that's a better environment than the box soccer court. Um, it's a different decision. It. It's a totally different decision. You know, so, you know, if you're actually in really tight spaces in the penalty area, And, you know, you've got three feet one way and then you've got two and a half feet another way. And between you and the goal, there's, you know, maybe one feet that's use one foot that's usable. The box soccer court is the best place to train that ability because you're literally dealing, dealing with those micro spaces more in a box soccer court than you're going to be dealing with in, in a, you know, on a, you know, a field, you know. And so, you know, so we have to look at the specific situation that we're training players for. You know, and I'm not, you know, saying that, you know, that we should go, um, you know, super, super small. But I believe the box soccer court is the best way to train shooting. 
you know, and it's so 100%. tight, it's so fast, Agreed. you know, and, you know, so why wouldn't it be better to train one-on-one dribbling in the box soccer court? Actually, it's the same principle. Actually, I, I have used the box soccer courts, especially when I have teams in their early stages of, of trying to get into 1v1s. I use the box soccer courts all the time for 1v1s. Me too. Yeah. Yeah, and you know what, re- what, what box soccer court doesn't reward and it takes away? I can look at the stats on, and I've done this on my one-on-ones on a big field, you know, and my faster player Mm -hmm. has better stats on a big field, just our our fields that, you know, that, that, you know, aren't that big. They have better stats. I put them in a box soccer court and it flips. My more skillful players have better stats. So you want to train your kids to, to, to be able to do what they don't have naturally. Agreed. So if you've got a fast kid, you don't want him on a big field. You want him in a box soccer court because he has to be skillful. Because he cannot use his speed because he runs into a wall every time he uses his speed on the box soccer court. Mm-hmm. He has to use his foot skill. He has to use his deception. He has to use his preset drag merit on the move in order to create a goal-scoring opportunity. But I, I, think, I, think, the, I think the field's fill up faster than the boxes for several reasons but i think one of the reasons and i think it's one that's worth considering and thinking about and um is is that kids prefer to play versus train technique training technique is not the kids favorite thing to do they prefer to play a game and so i don't mean a soccer game i just mean a a game that has competition a winner and a loser and so I find that when I'm using the box soccer courts, which I use every week, right, uh, for half of my session, uh, when I find when I'm using the box soccer courts, my kids get more out of it when I have turned it into a game that forces them to have a winner and a loser, that has a statistical component to it um, um, while working on technique. Um, and, and, and I think that, that that is probably at its core something that the coaches that use any space microspace or not the best is the coaches that that turn it into a competition turn it into a statistic statistical piece and this is fantastic because i have just realized what happened to me as far as racket sports went so when i was 15 i was captain of my school tennis team you know, and that came with a lot of responsibility. I had to arrange the fixtures. I actually had to get together with the captains of other schools, arrange the fixtures for, for the tennis team. And, uh, and you know, I love tennis. You know, and I learned to play tennis, funnily enough, rebounding you know, the ball against a house wall you know, in the front of my houses. You know, I've got photographs I can show you, you know, where that happened. You know, and, um, you know, and so I learned to swing a tennis racket. And that's what we had was a tennis racket at home when I was growing up. You know, and then I went to high school, and guess what? What did we have in the gymnasium? We had badminton. And I discovered a whole new level of speed because it was smaller. You know, and I, I fell in love with badminton, ended up captaining the badminton team while I was in high school, you know, and played, you know, and, and transferred my tennis skills, racket skills from tennis, into badminton, you know, and, you know, in badminton, I had to wring my shirt out at the end of every practice game, you know, because it was so absolutely exhausting. And then I got out of school, you know, and I started earning a bit of money and I joined the local squash club. Oh my God, it was heaven. Squash is so much faster, so much more demanding than badminton ever will be because the, the, the shuttlecock in badminton slows down so quickly and the squash ball slows down gradually. 
you know, like a soccer ball. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you are stretching for every single you know, shot in squash in the back corner. And the only way to get it back to the front wall is to come off the side wall, which is legal in squash. You know, and so, you know, you know, and the rallies go on and on in squash and you're extending your abilities again and again and again. And guess what? A squash court is smaller than a badminton court and a badminton court is smaller than a tennis court. My thesis is kids love it when it gets tighter and faster. I don't believe kids love big spaces. It gets slower. It would be against our whole principle of not using big outdoor fields, you know, to believe that there's any benefit in bigger spaces, whether it's motivational, whether it's ball touches, you know, anything at all. Within reason, the smaller you make the space that you put kids in, the more fun it gets. And that's my thesis on box soccer. I have never had kids come out of box soccer practices saying it was less fun than practicing on the field. Never. I beg to differ, Philippe. You know, it's just that's not part of most people's lexicon. They haven't experienced box soccer. They don't understand it. They don't understand that being surrounded by a rectangle of eight-foot-high walls where the ball doesn't escape and the game goes on and on and on until the coach calls a gap between rounds. They don't understand how absolutely massively fun it is, exhausting it is, technically brilliant it is. It's got everything in, in, in microcosm. And it's like being in the goal mouth under pressure in micro soccer where the games are won and lost by great warriors. And I'll get off my soapbox now. Why did we paint the walls of the fields black? So we don't have... Because so they there are dirty. club colors? <laughs> As... I'm wondering if we'd have more, uh, um, if the box soccer courts would be considered even more fun for kids if they weren't white like a doctor's office. Yeah, it's interesting, the, the impact of color, you know. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so, you know, who knows, but, you know, you know, we decided to make, you know, we had mostly white, right, you mm -hmm. know, in the facility. When, Almost exclusively white. When we put it in, it was yeah. mostly white, but that's not our club color. Yeah. You know, so we want to identify with the red and black because those are the two primary colors yeah. of the Legends Club. You know, we wear white under duress. We play black in black and red because we're proud of it. You know, we're known for it, mm -hmm. you know, in, in our community. You know, and so why not go black and red, you know, within the facility? And it has the added advantages. It doesn't show dirt like white. But a visual, visually, I think it, it's a much more dynamic, fun facility to walk into now that there's black walls. Yeah. I mean, yeah, genuinely, sure. like I, I think it, it has made a difference. I'm not sure people that are very religious would agree with you. I think they prefer the heaven look as opposed to the hell look. But. <laughs> the hell look would be red, right? <laughs> uh, well, guys, I don't remember the last time we had an episode where Philippe's veins were coming out of his neck and Andy's veins were coming out of his neck and I'm just sitting on the side watching. But this was that episode and uh, I appreciated it. And, and you've got to be careful because at my age, that might kill me. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> certainly don't want to be responsible and have that blood in my hand. <laughs> An another great episode, guys. We will uh, reconvene next week and uh, see you next time. See ya. Bye.